Hi, I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, coming to you from Peter Schramm's library in Ashland, Ohio. Hello and welcome to this episode of The American Idea. Today we're going to be talking about one of the most important but perhaps understudied documents of the 20th century, Franklin Roosevelt's Commonwealth Club Address. And to, me, to join me in that conversation today is Dr. John Mosier. John is the chair of the Department of History and Political Science at Ashland University. He's also the chair of our Master of Arts in American History and Government and an old friend and colleague. Thanks for joining us, John. Very glad to be here, Jeff. Let's talk for a minute about this document, the, the importance of it. Why, you know, we're, we're doing these episodes on the American idea, focusing on documents that we think are sort of fundamental for understanding America and what it means to be an American. Why this document? Yeah, well, in 2004, uh, a group of faculty of political rhetoric were pulled, and they, they rated this as the 78th best political speech of all time, and they said it was the second best campaign speech of all time. Okay, wow. Yeah, which is a little surprising, because I don't think it's a very good campaign speech at all. <laughs> and, and in fact, it didn't get much of a uh, much of a reaction, much of a pop from the audience. Uh, FDR did two speeches on that day, September 23rd, 1932, in, while he was in, uh, in San Francisco. The newspapers all chose to cover his other one. But what is interesting about it is it is there's actually substance to it. The same cannot be said for really any of FDR's other campaign hmm. speeches in 1932 because he had a good sense that he was going to win, right? The the public was blaming Hoover and the Republicans for the uh, for the Great Depression. Uh, the more specific he got, the more he ran the risk of alienating important constituencies. So he's he he kept his. His speech is very anodyne. You know, he would bash the Republicans, say, I'm going to bring recovery. The only really specifics that he would ever mention on the campaign trail were, were three of them. One, I'm going to cut spending because Hoover's spending too much. Kind of a, well, that's interesting. You know, yeah, okay. yeah, really. <laughs> uh, secondly, uh, I'm going to, um, we're going to legalize beer because... Uh, we're still in prohibition. Prohibition is still, uh, is still going on. Uh, and the third one is we're going to lower tariffs because... I'm a Democrat, and that's what Democrats. That do. had traditionally been the platform of the Democratic Party, right? Yeah, absolutely. But but in this one, and 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 again, he doesn't get specific to the point of saying, "Here are the policies that my administration will promote." But he does, he he does give more a sense of of the philosophy that would be uh, guiding the New Deal. Okay, so all these other campaign speeches, what you're saying is FDR played it safe. Right, exactly. He didn't talk much about policy and really none about philosophy. Right. Here, though, we have him revealing his underlying, the principles underlying his progressivism. Yeah, although we can't even be sure that it's his progressivism. Uh, why not? Uh, he did not write this speech. Now, there's nothing unusual about that. He didn't write any of his speeches. In fact, that's the case with most presidents of the 20th century. Um, but 
in most speeches, if you go back, you go into the archives, go to go to Hyde Park, the FDR library, which is wonderful. I, I, I highly recommend a visit there. You can go into the files and you can find the text of his speeches. Hmm. Written by others, but you can—they're f- all marked up, right? You can see his uh, handwriting, okay. his marginal notes, things crossed out. So he had significant input into his speeches. Not this one. Uh, it was written by uh, Adolf Burley, who was a professor of of law at Columbia University and was a key member of FDR's so-called Brains Trust. These, those were his advisors, exactly. Who were mostly around Columbia, uh, mostly in law, in fact. Okay. And um, and 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 so he drafted it. His idea was Herbert Hoover talks about individualism, right? Remember his R- rugged rugged individualism, individualism right? was, okay was was a key aspect of his 1928 campaign. And he still liked to talk about the American system of individual uh, individual liberty, individual initiative. And he said, let's write some... Uh, Burley said, I want to write a speech for the for the candidate, for Governor Roosevelt, that, that shows that, well, okay, we stand for individual individualism as well, but it's not the old individualism of the founding era. Ah, okay. And so he wrote this speech... Raymond Moley, who was kind of the, the, the he was his campaign manager, kind of the, the informal head of the Brains Trust, okayed it, made some changes of his own. But it has been said that FDR did not even see this speech until he was at the podium. Wow. So no input on it whatsoever. So it, so, so it may not reveal FDR's own thinking exactly, but he was willing to give the speech. It, yes. And it clearly, from what you're saying, reveals the ideas underlying progressivism in the mid-20th century in America, which is an incredibly powerful movement at the time. Exactly right. The, the, the men who advised, who advised Roosevelt were, were, were very much committed to this idea of progressivism. So this is, this is an idea that's going to shape much of the development in America of the 20th century. I certainly would. All right, let's talk a little bit about the speech itself, mm-hmm. and some of the arguments that FDR makes. It, it is interesting because he starts with a kind of historical discussion of the development of government, and particularly national government. Yeah. Um, tell us about this kind of history lesson that he's going to give. This is the first sign that this is not a traditional campaign speech. <laughs> this is the kind of thing only a professor would write. Yeah, he's not tar- He's not even targeting the Republicans in this uh, in this speech. It, it's a, very different from any of his other any of his other addresses. Um, but yeah, he starts off on this account of how. Uh, of how strong centralized governments came into existence as an effort to to check the the power and liberty of the great nobility right and that ordinary people and, generally, and this happens he's talking about this happening in Europe yeah right right like you know 16th 17th okay. centuries wow uh, and 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 the, the rise of he doesn't use the term but what we often call absolutism mm-hmm. so you have these 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 increasingly powerful monarchies who are growing powerful at the expense of the great nobles and Roosevelt's contention or, or I should say Burley's contention and I think it's a good one is that this benefited ordinary people because these quarrelsome nobles liked fighting all all the time uh, they didn't produce any wealth uh, they, 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 Ordinary people felt like they were left alone more uh-huh. with a strong king who was able to keep the local nobles at heel. Okay. And then he then he he goes into a uh, uh, in, 
he develops this story in a way that he's going to repeat later when he talks about the uh, the development of industry. Mm-hmm. He says, well, who were these kings? Well, they were effective, but they were also ruthless. Ah. They had to be, given to what To put they, down the nobles. To, exactly right. But once they... Once they had done the job, and once we had effective centralized government, then counterbalancing forces began to appear. Town councils, right? city governments, uh, legislative bodies. So in the, in the UK, parliament uh-huh. uh, appears, and they start to place checks on the power of these uh, on the power of these these hmm. kings. And he makes a point of saying. It is out of this struggle that the United States was born. I see. So he's really placing the United States in the flow of history, in the context of history. Exactly. And I'm thinking back to an episode uh, that we uh, on Woodrow Wilson and Calvin Coolidge and the Progressives with Professor J- Jason Stevens, who made the point, the really interesting point, that for the Progressives, like Wilson and FDR, history is a really important idea that there is a flow of history, that America is just one part in a flow of history, and that the flow of history is evolution and progress. But it comes in fits and starts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so where, is, where does America show up in this story that FDR is telling? It shows up, it, it's, it, it, it's born out of rebellion against uh, a, ruthless, a ruthless monarch. Of course. The, right? the and, grievances of the Declaration of Independence. It, it, yeah, exactly right. So this is how he brings Jefferson into the story. Okay. Uh, once the, uh, you know, once the, the revolution is over, he does briefly go into the contest between Jefferson and, uh, and Hamilton, which he claims is the basis for the two parties to this day. All right some pretty serious liberties with that story but okay okay um hamilton 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 standing for uh for kind of elite rule okay uh elite public spirited rule and the ordinary people are not really capable of governing their uh, governing their own affairs and jefferson standing for he's standing for the 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 rule by the people Mm -hmm. and uh the value of the independent citizen by which he generally meant the small farmer okay and Jefferson triumphs. Jefferson and his supporters triumph in, in this contest. And so you have what 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 Roosevelt refers to here as this the great age of individualism, hmm. of the individual against the, the against the system, and the system is kept limited. Government is kept off the back of uh, of of people, and and it works, and it works because of the circumstances of the time. Ah, so Hamilton wanted strong government run by elites perhaps for the benefit of the whole country, but including the elites. Mm -hmm. Jefferson argues, no, we want a government that stays off the back of the common man and woman and lets them live their lives. That's correct. And Jefferson wins this first stage of the fight. Right, right, right. How does it develop from there? Well, you've got this society, as I said, it's an age of individualism where individualism works, but it works, according to the speech, for particular reasons. Uh, For one thing, there is very cheap almost free land available in the West. Ah. The, co- the, the country keeps expanding. The, the frontier keeps moving West. People can head, if they feel like their opportunities are limited where they are, they can light out for the frontier and, 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 and start a new life. And, and even if they didn't actually do it, just the knowledge that they could 
helped made things uh, made things better for them uh and and it's a system based on uh, on on agriculture mm-hmm. where the small again the small farmer prevails producing his stuff sending it to market making a making a profit as long as that according to this speech, along, as long as, as those essentials remained in place, you could maintain that system. But that system of Jeffersonian individual liberty has to have those underlying material elements to it, like free land to the West. Correct. If it doesn't, the system begins to run into trouble. Right, and so this is this is where he where 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 Burley is uh, uh, is drawing on uh, Frederick Jackson Turner and the Turner thesis, the, the closing the of frontier. the frontier. Right, right. The 1890 census shows there's no more frontier. So what's going to happen now? Uh, so that 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 cheap land is no longer available. Second development, the development, the Industrial Revolution, ah. and what comes out of that, the rise of very large businesses, major corporations. So the argument is the old Jeffersonian Republic was based on almost unlimited opportunity, right? If you had the, the gumption to use that old yeah. fashioned word, all you had, you, you, you could set up, set yourself up with a new farm or a small business, set up a shop or something. And, and you had a pretty good chance of succeeding. Now he says by the, and he starts to bring the story into Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson. Uh, he takes some huge liberties in that story, but okay. Um, but but by the early 20th century, all those essential preconditions of the Jeffersonian Republic are gone. Ah. So if we want a government that benefits the people, we might have to change our understanding of what government's supposed to do, given these new conditions. Correct. And this is where... Roosevelt, based, or, or, or Burley in writing this speech, says, we need another Jefferson, but a Jefferson who's adapted to the current circumstances. Ah. So, uh, I got a feeling that might turn out to be FDR. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, you, 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 you're probably aware that the Jefferson Memorial was built in, was built during the, the 1930s, during the period of the New Deal. Oh, and if you go that's and, fascinating. And you look at the inscriptions... Uh, that are up there. A, a lot of them are taken wildly out of context and are all and, and always can be. Uh, these are all quotes that can be used to defend New Deal policies. How about that? It's it's it's, it's a fascinating. <laughs> That's study something of, for our listeners to look at the next time they go to the Jefferson yeah, Memorial. Sure, the use of a monument to promote a certain certain political agenda. So it's it's one thing though to trace this development of national government to say, look, we're under different conditions now, and if we want to achieve the same ends. We need to change our understanding of government. But as you said, he goes on then to make a second really big point, which is, but does that mean we have to abandon individualism? And FDR's answer is no, we have to redefine individualism. Exactly. In fact, what, he's pro- what is being proposed now is are measures that will protect the individual. And will and, and will allow for more individual freedom and individual opportunity. The the freedom of opportunity that existed in the days of the early republic is is gone now. We we can't just light out to the frontier because there's not the cheap land's not there. Right. Setting up a business is now much more complicated because you say, well, I'm going to establish my own steel mill. Well, good luck with that. Right. You've got U.S. Steel right. to deal with, uh-huh. and you could t- say the same for just about any 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 form of of, of industry in the country. So. What do we do now to make Jefferson relevant? And, and Wilson did the same thing. Yeah, I was right? going to say this. This sounds like yeah. FDR is um, 
echoing and building on Woodrow Wilson's thought. He he is Wilson. Uh, Wilson famously said, "If if if we want to, uh, if we want to appreciate the Declaration of Independence, uh, he said, do not repeat the preface. <laughs> is leave out the part about uh, you, you know that we are endowed by our creators with certain inalienable rights, among them life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's just rhetorical flourish." Wilson says, "Don't look at that. Look at the list of grievances. This is what we have to. Th- th- this uh. is, is what we pay attention to." Roosevelt doesn't do that. Roosevelt says he sa- he uses a term that Wilson never does: rights. Oh, okay. Uh, the term rights had really fallen into bad odor among the original progressives. They didn't talk about them. Roosevelt makes rights central to what's going on here. So he says, you know, how do how do we the the individual has a right to life? Absolutely. That means he also has a right to a living, to a job. Aha. Uh-huh. The individual has a right to property, yes. So he he ought to be able. We ought to, to ensure that his property is protected. Like if somebody invests on Wall Street, those investments need to be protected from unscrupulous, uh, you know, Wall Street brokers or, uh-huh. or, 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 or manipulators. So of, you have of, the SEC, the Security and Exchange Commission. There you go. Yeah, I yeah. see. Uh, so you don't. So what FDR is doing here is saying, unlike earlier progressives like Wilson, he is not openly rejecting the founding principles. He's saying we have to redefine them. Exactly. Exactly. So really, he says a new economic order, um, and, and, and a dec- almost a, de- a new declaration of independence that is adopted for our own times. What's his redefinition of individualism? If individualism, as Herbert Hoover, as Calvin Coolidge, perhaps. Abraham Lincoln, all the way back to the founding, said, well, it's the right of the individual to govern themselves, to, to live their lives, to be free to try and sell their labor for, and make a living and build a business and all of those things that we traditionally think of. That's what individualism is. Mm-hmm. And voluntarily associate with others to do those things and take care of your local town and your community. That's the kind of individualism that we typically think of. What does FDR now say individualism is it, to a certain extent it's liberty okay um because he talks about what well, he, he, he makes a claim that jefferson never made that there that rights could be divided into rights of personal competency like right to freedom of speech freedom of the, of the press freedom of expression freedom of religion he says obviously we continue to protect those things okay but this whole other category of things associated with property we have to make sure that that people with lots of property cannot do things with that property that are going to hurt others. Ah. So security is the other thing that comes out of this. The, so the, so, so the, the rights of the individual include the security of the individual, right? If, if he, and that, inc- that security is not just the security of your physical person, but economic security. Ec- economic security, exactly. And you can see why he's saying that in 1932 during the Great Depression. When there's a great deal of insecurity uh, out there. Yeah. Sure. So the, and the old idea of individualism, was, individualism would have been you're economically secure by being free to labor and build wealth for yourself. And what does Roosevelt say to that? Well, Roosevelt says, look at all the people who are suffering now through no fault of their own. Right? They're out of a job. Mm. Uh, and, and there's nobody hiring or their banks, <laughs> their banks have gone under and they've lost their, they've lost their savings. Uh, how do those, how, how can we say that their individual freedom has given them, them security? 
and it doesn't even look like they have the prospect of security because they can't get a job and they can't go west and find free land to build their own lives. Correct. And and then this gets to his his kind of what's often called the mature economy thesis that says that uh, the the time of rapid seemingly unlimited growth in the United States is over. And that's important because otherwise you would say look if you just leave people free and you leave the market free eventually we'll come out of the great depression new businesses will come new industries will happen and they'll start employing people in ways that we never even imagined yeah and this was one aspect of the speech that hoover picked up on and he referred to it in later speeches that roosevelt is selling the country short right yes we're in a bad time right now one of the things hoover always liked to do is say compare the last three years which have been terrible to the progress of the last 30 We've made, there's amazing, there was amazing progress between 1900 and 19 and 1929. Mm -hmm. Why would we let this setback, a serious setback, but it's a setback. Why would we let this change our fundamental way of understanding our country? So what does FDR say to this idea that, look, the Great Depression will eventually be over and we'll grow our way out of it into new industry and new forms of business. He he doesn't think that's the case and certainly his 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 brain stress doesn't think it's the case either. We have now seen the end of unlimited growth and now we, we, he's he's got this he's got this quote here. Uh, it calls for a reappraisal of values, a mere builder of more industrial plants, a creator of more railroad systems, an organizer of more corporations is as likely to be a danger as a help. Uh, he's, he's skipping on down to the end that, that now that now what's important to this country is not the financial titan who who brought to, who created these big companies and, and 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 helped usher in the new industrial order. It's now the enlightened administrator is the, uh. is, is going to be the hero of the next century, the one who says, okay, we're less important, less concerned about growth because we've reached the end of that. And we're now concerned about administering and, and, and being good stewards for what stewards for what we have. And so this idea that was perhaps born with Woodrow Wilson of the administrative state, FDR says, now that time has really come. Yes. We yes. really need enlightened administrators who will know kind of how to regulate and distribute the wealth that exists, not the financier or the entrepreneur who's going to build new wealth. Correct. Roosevelt praises Wilson at least as much as he praises Jefferson in this in this address. Uh-huh. So he said, we're going to use Wilsonian principles to achieve Jeffersonian ends. Yes. And he thinks he's that guy. He thinks, yeah, or <laughs> Burley does anyway. <laughs> right, right, right. So um, this redefinition of individualism and to some extent of rights, especially rights of property, um, how is it received? You mentioned that the press didn't necessarily cover the speech, but that just means on that day they were paying attention to something and not another thing. What about the effect of this speech and this argument? Because it does seem like a very deep, a very profound and potentially really important argument. Yeah, it didn't go over well with the audience. I mean, the theory behind having FDR give that speech to the Commonwealth Club in, in San Francisco, this was a, a civic organization that had been around since, I think, 1903 and was mostly businessmen and, and you know, newspaper, newspaper figures, solid citizens. Uh, the speech kind of fell flat with them. Hmm. Uh, there were a couple who said, well, this sounds like socialism. Um, and... and 
the the fact is there was another you know, six weeks left of the campaign after this speech. He doesn't. He never gives another speech like this. Really, that's a pretty clear sign that that the that the campaign itself did not did not regard this as a successful speech. But as I mentioned, Hoover picks up on it. And yeah, and what does Hoover say about this? Hoover says this is our best days are ahead of us. Why look at this? You know, why why focus on on this this crisis and think that something fundamental has changed? We've had economic crises before in this country. We've always gotten past them, and they've been followed by periods of of even greater growth than before. Because that is, I mean, I'm I'm looking at some lines here from this speech that FDR just clearly rejects. He flat out rejects, as you said before. And I'll just read what he says. He says, "As I see it." The task of government now, in its relation to business, is to assist the development of an economic declaration of rights, an economic constitutional order. This is the common task of statesman and, and businessman. It is the minimum requirement of a more permanently safe order of things. What does he mean by the task of government now is to assist in the development of an economic declaration of rights. Yeah. Well, it, it, it goes back to what I said before, that understanding that we have the right to life, therefore we have the right to make a living. We've got a right to a, a, right to a job. And if we can't find it, if, 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 if the market isn't providing those jobs, then government has to. So you get to, things like the Civilian Conservation Corps in the New Deal. Yeah, although... The Works Progress Administration. Although... Roosevelt was, this is a great example of, 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 uh, of the speech saying things that Roosevelt himself might not. Roosevelt was not convinced that jobs programs were a long-term solution. He thought, okay, we're going we're gonna to need them in the, in, in the short term. Um, but, but he was concerned about, about the public becoming dependent. People talk about Roosevelt as a big spender, and of course he was, but he never spent as much as, say, John Maynard Keynes, the, 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 the eminent economist. People talk about the New Deal as Keynesian. It wasn't particularly, at least World War II in a way was, uh, I mean, right, and you have truly massive expenditures, but Roosevelt really was more economically or, or, or fiscally conservative than he's given credit for. He was always looking for opportunities to cut spending. As you said, he ran, that was one of the planks of his yeah, campaign. Yeah, and it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't phone, that wasn't phony. He, he meant that. But that, it, but he would, but he also wanted to tie that, it sounds like here, to, to uh, a change in an underlying philosophy and say, right. we, we're going to have this new philosophy and principles that may or may not require permanent government jobs programs, but we need to re-understand government's relation to economics. Yes, right. Even, I mean, no president before, and, and, and I would include Wilson and, and, and Theodore Roosevelt, said that the government ought to guarantee a living to to the American people, or even said that the government was responsible for the economic health of the country. Recessions happened, and you know they could affect politics in a in, in a certain way. But the understanding was, you let it ride; it's going to get it, it it's going to get better. So this is really, as you say, the first articulation of a of the principle that government has a permanent role in shaping the economic order for the good of the citizens. That's correct, and not let the market handle it. Right, I mean, there's a, there's a place for the, the, the market, place for the of market. course. Sorry, yeah. But you don't you don't rely on it solely to produce the effects that you want. How do we see this speech? So that does seem, as you say, 
new radical. Uh, Hoover tries to c convince people it's radical, but FDR wins in a landslide. Yeah. Hoover doesn't, he fails to persuade people. How do we see the reverberations of this speech later in the 20th century? The, the ideas in this speech later in the 20th century. Well, I mean, we have, we have certainly seen in every economic setback since the Depression, the idea is the government's got to do something. Yeah. Right? 2000, uh, 2008. Mm -hmm. uh, and, the, the, and, and by the way, even though Hoover denounced it, I mean, Hoover in some ways practiced that as well. He did things that no previous president uh, uh, did in times of in, in times mm. of recession or depression. I'll give you an example. 1921, there was a very serious recession that 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 set in. Herbert Hoover was Secretary of Commerce. He was ready to go into action. Harding was kind of well, you know, these things happen. And within a you know within a few months, the economy was booming again, and Hoover never even had an opportunity to put his uh -huh. his plans into action. So so there, there's often this this dichotomy created between between Hoover and Roosevelt that I think often overlooks. I mean, there were lines that Hoover would not cross that FDR would, mm -hmm. but it, it, it's it's a mistake to see the two as opposites. How do we see FDR's principles reverberate later? I'm thinking of someone like LBJ, Lyndon Baines Johnson in the 1960s and the Great Society. It, of course, Johnson is president at a very different time. He it, this It's a time of booming prosperity. Yeah. Uh, nevertheless, LBJ wants to fight a war on poverty. He wants to say, okay, in a, in a, in a country that's as wealthy as ours, how do we save ourselves from, to use LBJ's term, a soulless prosperity where all we're doing is focusing on, on getting rich and we're forgetting about our neighbor? Well, that's where, that's where the great society programs come in. Uh, so it's, it's, it is, it is about security, but it's focusing on, segments of the population that have not been enjoying the prosperity that most of the country has. So in your view, is LBJ looking back to the arguments that we sort of see here in the Commonwealth Club Address, that government really has to have a, a permanent place in ordering society, maybe even engineering society, to create prosperity and, and a kind of meaning that's right. Side. Yeah, yeah. LBJ was directly influenced by Roosevelt. He was he, he got his political start as a as a New Deal administrator, ah, and then and okay. before before going into Congress. Huh. Um, did we see in the rest of FDR's administration? How do we see him carrying out some of these principles? You said it's it's important not to exaggerate the extent to which FDR intervened or wanted to intervene, but how do we see a couple of examples for our listeners of where they would say, ah, here's this principle in practice? Yeah, I mean, we talked about this, about public works programs, but uh, I'll, I'll give you a, a, a classic example. This is of, of a line that Hoover refused to cross, but yeah. FDR would. Yeah. The National Industrial Recovery Act, which was which premised on the idea that uh, recovery is going to come along once we drive prices up, we have to get prices to go up. Wages will go up with uh, with it. So how do you do that? Well, there's been too much cutthroat competition. So we are going to to form these committees uh, made up of made up of of business leaders. There would be some government government representation and labor representation on these committees. But each industry was going to have its own its own uh, committee that would come together and create codes of conduct. 
That would include price fixing. That wow. would include a minimum wage. Uh, and, and, and of course, you know, a lot of old style progressives who were concerned about antitrust said, in fact, NIRA yeah. specifically said antitrust does not, cannot affect the, the, the codes. So the codes were really a, a, a kind of cartelization of the, uh, of, of the economy. And uh, under the auspices of the federal government, uh, under the auspices of the federal government. Right. And then, and then once these codes were drawn up, the federal government could enforce them. So if there was a if there was a uh, uh, oh I don't know uh, poultry butchers who who are uh, who who uh, don't follow the code in some way I'm not going into details Schechter poultry <laughs> yeah that's that's how that's the case that ultimately brought down uh, the N the N the NRA the National Recovery Administration uh huh um, but 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 it, it fits in with what Roosevelt says here about. Uh, People, we have to cooperate and think about the public good. Yeah, not necessarily about individual uh, about individual selfishness. And it'll be run by enlightened administrators. Yes. Yeah. Fascinating. Fascinating. And I think we can still see the echoes of that kind of idea that these economic problems are um, problems that, if you're smart enough and you're expert enough, you government officials can try and solve them. That's right. Yeah, and we still see that powerful strain of thinking in America today. Sure. Yeah. Fascinating, John. Thank you very much. I mean, this really helped us unlock this really interesting address that, as you say, probably not too many people have heard of. But they start hearing these ideas and they want to know, where did we first see these ideas prominently in America? It's right here. It is. Thank you very much for joining us. Glad to be here. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The American Idea, a production of the Ashbrook Center. If you enjoyed this episode, please give it a five-star rating and review on your platform of choice. Subscribe for more at ashbrook.org slash AmericanIdeaPod and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at AMIdeaPodcast. From the Schramm Library in Ashland, Ohio, I'm Jeff Sickenberg.